You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, entitled, What is Necessary in These Urgent Times? Lecture 11, entitled, Spiritual Realities in Practical Life, given in Dornach on February 7, 1920. Today I will introduce a few things into our considerations that will allow us to more completely examine tomorrow's theme. To discuss certain things with you, it will be necessary for me to make use of an almost aphoristic style. We have been looking at a very broad swath of the symptoms and the phenomena that have appeared in the course of history in the hopes of understanding how all these occurrences are leading humanity to an understanding of spiritual realities. And I have also sought to make it clear that in speaking about an understanding of spiritual realities, we are not saying that people should seek to understand the spiritual world only so that they have something to fill the hours on Sundays. This is one of the most ruinous things that has developed in civilization in the last few centuries, that spiritual life has gradually become so removed and abstract. In response to the question, what connects the worldview, the spiritual perspective, as well as the non-spiritual, of a farmer, jurist, factory worker, salesman, with the things they do on a daily basis, which I addressed at a public lecture in Basel not long ago, people say, nothing flows from one's worldview into one's work, that is to say, the carrying out of those daily tasks. An individual is a person of practical life, and that individual also has a purely abstract worldview that is colored to a greater or lesser extent by religion and science. This has become the customary way of thinking in the course of the last centuries, and it has reached a high point now in these fateful times. And at the core of this matter lies something even more threatening, namely the people who have the good will to take up a spiritual worldview, learn from its content that it has nothing to do with their practical lives. They learn that practical life is the thing that is truly real, the thing on which you must spend time on a day-to-day basis. Spirituality is there for Sundays. People remove it from their lives feeling that those day-to-day lives are not worthy of including spirituality. I have always made every effort to make it clear that what I refer to as anthroposophically oriented spiritual science intends to ascend to the very heights of spiritual life, but that this ascension into the spiritual world will then engender in human beings a way of thinking, a form of imagination, that will prepare them to be active and capable in nearly every sector of everyday life. People will have something from their spiritual work for the higher worlds 
that they can also take into their business, their practical daily lives. This work, undertaken for the spiritual world, should not mislead us into saying that, quote, the spiritual world exists apart from everything else. It must not be disturbed by the coarseness of everyday life. That the coarseness of everyday life is something separate, it should be held in contempt. The spiritual world is the higher world, the sublime world, close quote. In the past, I have often and strongly pointed this out and have told you that over the years, several people have come to me and said, Ah, I have such a prosaic job. I would like to quit and dedicate myself to ideals. That is the worst maxim that one can possibly have. A person who, through destiny, through karma, is a postal worker and a good one, does more for the world, if he or she does the job well, than being a bad poet or a bad journalist or something of that sort, which people sometimes long to be. It is important that when you draw near to spiritual realities, you take those spiritual facts into the core of your thinking and feeling in such a way that you do not remove yourself from daily life, but rather to make yourself more able to enter it. Because this latter resolve has vanished from human life ever since the 15th century, and because life has, by and large, divided divided into these two separate pieces, on the one hand the practical life, looked down upon by idealists and mystic, and on the other the mystical religious idealistic life, seen to be fuzzy and dreamy by practical people, we now stand in the midst of the impasse described to you yesterday. This is the deeper reason for why we have reached this point. This is what has caused the current situation. In practical life, every individual stands in a little bubble, as I described yesterday, working without a broader vision and without heartfelt participation in the whole. But when people are idealistic enough to dedicate themselves to a spiritual worldview, they desire to take that spiritual worldview up such that it never develops into anything in practical life, for example, into a well-thought-out book or journal. There's a word missing, let me try that again. But when people are idealistic enough to dedicate themselves to a spiritual worldview, they desire to take that spiritual worldview up such that it never develops into anything in practical life, for example, into a well-thought-out book or journal. There are people who actually consider it a virtue when someone does not understand and is altogether unable to grasp how a journal or a non-fiction book is composed. This is truly a great loss, and one that has become gradually more profound in the course of the last few centuries. It is not a virtue to have no idea how to understand non-fiction books, and it is not a blessing for humankind to have people, no matter how many of them there are, who want to be idealists, by understanding nothing about practical matters, and by desiring only to give themselves over to spiritual considerations. The healthy path in life is to allow these two life maxims to interpenetrate and become interdependent. But these tremendous losses that have gradually appeared 
in a view of small circles during the last few centuries are also visible on a larger scale insofar as no one has actually, or truly we might say, no one save for a few who have also posed the question in an utterly impractical manner, concerned themselves with the following question. How is it possible that something healthy will emerge from antiquated structures? I described to you yesterday how these appear on our maps, which were drawn up as the states of Europe prior to the war that began in 1914. Yes, people today have unfortunately not come far enough, even after the trials of the last four to five years, to really consider these matters healthily. Think about it. If you were to have a cool head, enough to consider the far-reaching causes of the terrible catastrophes of the last four and a half or five years, you would find that they lay in the industrial and economic relationships between Central Europe and the Western regions, including the Americas relationships which had long since come into conflict with the established borders between countries. The national structures, which had been built up out of entirely different circumstances and were dependent upon relationships dating back to the Middle Ages, these national relationships were used as artistic frames placed around interests that were purely commercial and industrial. They served absolutely no purpose, but they were used in this way. And today we are so unaware of this that a long since hopeless, though for a short time unusually disruptive, social democratic movement also has absolutely no effect in the world. Now we are experiencing the rise of socialist theories all over, including in Asia, which are becoming particularly radical. These socialist theories are trying to create something practical. Before the war, they had tried to make use of the frames that existed around the old states. Now they are trying to use the frames that were established after the catastrophe of the war. For example, Russia, as it has been defined since the war, is being used as a frame for Bolshevist theories. If you are able to think about reality clearly, you will see that nothing is more senseless than this attempt at framing. There is nothing more nonsensical than this structure, which was created first out of purely medieval forces and now is combined with the unnatural experiences resulting from the war and the Treaty of Versailles, a peace accord that offers no peace at all. That this structure just east of Europe should now take up the fantasies of Lenin and Trotsky is nonsensical in the long term and so tumultuous in the present that it can only result in halting the healthy evolution of humanity in Europe. But this understanding of reality is exactly what we might say is missing these days from the opinions of the general public. Public opinion is not built on an understanding of reality, but rather on abstractions, on abstract theories. And when something does come along that is not built on abstract theories, like the threefold social order, something that is taken right out of life itself, and that must be summarized in just a few words, because it is not possible to write three volumes and people would not read them anyhow, 
people do not recognize the spirit of reality in it. Instead, because they are already full of other theories, people see it as simply another theory. They no longer have any sense of what is truly taken from life itself because they have alienated themselves from reality altogether. People today must become practical in the most eminent sense of the word, and yet they must also still be able to look into the spiritual world. For only when these two elements are able to coexist in the core of each human being will that core of humanity develop healthily into the future. When the time comes that a person will no longer be considered a fool for saying, over in the East there are souls that through the particular historical relationships in Asia have evolved in such a way that today they have little understanding of the external world and could thereby easily become the prey of materialistic Europeans. But they have also evolved such that they also are able to preserve for themselves a window to the spiritual world. When that day comes, we will actually find that there are such souls in the East. One particularly significant and representative example is the person of Rabindranath Tagore, whom I have mentioned often before. But this Rabindranath Tagore, who is by no means an initiate, but simply an Asian intellectual, has in himself the entire spirit of Asia, one might say, and you can learn a lot about this striving spirit of Asia from his collection of lectures entitled Nationalism. These souls over there in the East, however, lack the inner relationship to what impels those in Europe and America into a relationship with the external physical world. I would like to reiterate something that I have said to you before. It is only the last few centuries that have brought us what we might call a purely mechanistic culture. Today you will read in geography books that the world is populated by about 1.5 billion people. This, however, does not hold true when you take into consideration the amount of work that is carried out on the earth. Let us imagine that a being from Mars were to come down to earth and were to tally up the earth's population. First they would ask, how much work does one human being do on earth when one takes into consideration his or her strengths and powers for working? And then they would ask, what is the total amount of work being done by everyone put together? Even if we include all the people who were alive before the war, the numbers still will not add up. There would not be enough people. If one were to calculate how many people were on the earth based on the amount of work being done, the answer would not be 1.5 billion, but rather more like 2 or 2.2 billion people. <clears throat> Why? Because, actually, so much work is carried out by machines on this earth that it is roughly equivalent to 700 million people. If these machines were not there, and if the work that they did were instead to be carried out by human beings, there would need to be 700 million more people on earth. I calculated that figure using the amount of coal used by the masses and counted a work day as being eight hours long. What I have said is true according to the approximate amount of coal used in the beginning of the 20th century and for an eight-hour work day. You could actually say 
According to the amount of work that is carried out in the earth, there are actually 2.2 billion people on it. But the work that is carried out by purely mechanical machines and instruments, that work is done more or less entirely in Europe and America, much less in Asia. It has begun to catch on there, but it is still only in the beginning stages, for the Asian peoples do not have an understanding of the mechanization of the world. They lack entirely an understanding of the things that began in the West sometime in the last few centuries or even back in the middle of the 15th century. In saying this, we must not only think about the fact that work is being done by machines, we must also realize that humanity's imaginative being turned toward this mechanization of the world. Someone today could say, building the Gotthard Tunnel required a tremendous number of workers. But these days, people cannot build something like the Gotthard Tunnel without knowing about differential and integral calculations, and those originated with Leibniz, the English say with Newton, but we will not concern ourselves with this quarrel. Thus the Gotthard Tunnel, or the Hauenstein Tunnel, not from far from here, could not have been built if Leibniz had not discovered differential and integral calculations in his study. The entire thinking of Europe since Copernicus and Galileo has been directed toward this mechanization of the world. Now read some of Rabindranath Tagore and see how much he hates this mechanization of the world. But where will all this lead? From the perspective of a spiritual worldview, it could be said, quote, all of these souls who are incarnated in the East, in that region we refer to as the East, they will seek to incarnate during their next lifetime in the West. The Western people will seek to incarnate during their next li- lifetime more toward the East. Those in the middle will need to seek a means of building a bridge between the two, close quote. But if you try to say that it is a cultural historical demand that our educational system and other similar institutions be based on the fact that these two migrating waves of souls are crossing one another on the earth, if you say something like that to the masses of clever people out there right now, let us take the cleverest of the bunch, those who have been elected to government positions, then you will hear them tell you that you are a fool that what you are saying is absolutely crazy. Nonetheless, people must recognize this reality, just as in earlier times they came to understand things we now consider anthropological truths, the intermingling of the races and the division of the races and so on. We must begin to consider spiritually everything that has, until now, been considered only from an external, physiological perspective. There are good theosophists out there who, during the holidays and respites in their lives, do indeed believe that human beings live through multiple incarnations on the earth. For them, this belief is an act of faith. But nothing comes of this. If you only believe in reincarnation and karma as though they were articles of faith, it is worth nothing. It is worth about as much as writing a little blurb about something. Things like this only become worthwhile when you incorporate them into all of your thinking about the world, and also into the business, into the giving and the taking, 
that goes on every day. These things only become worthwhile when one deals with them in a cultural historical context. And if you do not see these matters as something that is important only on life's holidays and Sabbaths, but instead see them as something that penetrate every aspect of your life, and if you truly have such thoughts, one can play around theosophically with these thoughts a good bit, clearly, then you will have enough understanding to write a well-thought-out book or run a successful bank, and you will not feel ashamed if you find yourself in a situation where it is necessary to undertake work as a cobbler, for only those who are able to stand in the midst of practical life, who can be prepared under any circumstances to lend a hand and be involved, for those people the entire human organism is so interpenetrated with inner skillfulness and preparedness that this inner preparedness translates into thoughts that are truly full of content. This is what must penetrate into the thinking and feeling core of human beings. It will penetrate into our culture when we familiarize ourselves with what people these days fear most of all. We can accurately say there are two things that exist at present that point to two separate fears of modern-day human beings. I do not believe you will say I am wrong if you consider the matter with an inner feeling for the truth. The first is that in nearly every circle of the civilized world, there exists a deep fear of actually discovering the true causes of the war. People do not want to consider this subject. They do not want to stick their noses into it. At most, they will look at their enemies, but certainly not at their own country. With very few exceptions, people avoid any consideration of the true causes of the horrible human catastrophes of recent years. They have a deep fear of it. During the war, this fear found expression in an almost idealistic fashion. At the time, there were people who took a stand and said, from this war there will result a new way of life, a new ripening of human ideals, and so on. People will have to study a good deal about the events of recent history in order to eventually arrive at the true causes behind this catastrophe of fear. But what they will find is that nothing positive exists within the history of this war. They will find that the old cultural and civil structures had grown rotten, that in the catastrophe of this war they had carried themselves to the point of absurdity, that this war proves that civilization, as it had existed up to the war, had driven itself to the point of absurdity. This is one of the things of which people have such a deeply set fear. They fear an actual experience of this truth. They are so afraid these days that they have completely given up thinking about tomorrow as they live out today. The idea that the Treaty of Versailles could ever bear positive fruits in reality, no reasonable person can believe such a thing, neither on one side nor the other. And yet because people only think about today and not about tomorrow, this strange instrument has been put into place. That is an actual experience of the truth. But there is also something else. People's fear of the movement toward an ever greater consciousness in soul life. 
Any time that people feel justified in fleeing into unconsciousness, they are happy. When a worldview such as anthroposophically oriented spiritual science is presented to them, a worldview that strives toward a full-fledged training of consciousness and intends through this work with consciousness to bring it into its full reality, then people do not want anything to do with it. It is too difficult for them. It requires activity. It requires that one have an active spiritual life. That is too difficult. But people strive to have two things revealed to them through means that exist below the level of consciousness. Those two things are, first, what spiritual life is exactly, and second, what it is that lives in human beings. There are so many people, far more than you realize, who want nothing to do with spiritual truths, arrived at through healthy soul understanding. But when, through some sort of mediating force, some sort of medium, a pronouncement is made to them about this or that thing relating to the spiritual world, they fall for it immediately. They do not have to work hard to understand something this way. It comes about unconsciously, and people want to believe these unconscious things. The other thing that follows immediately upon this is the field of psychoanalysis which has spread itself out into the world so crassly. It is difficult to believe the incredible alacrity with which this psychoanalysis has found a place in human souls. What is it based upon? It is based upon a bunch of people in the medical field doing as they please, and it is difficult to explain briefly. I have often offered analyses of psychoanalysis here in the past. Arranging things in such a way that all that is unconsciously present in human souls is raised to the level of consciousness. The psychoanalysts <clears throat> listen to others talk about their dreams, discovering the disappointments and unfulfilled wishes they have experienced in the past, which have since been forgotten and which have built little islands for themselves in the individual soul, and they seek by these means to gain clarity into what actually lives in a human soul. Particularly clever practitioners have discovered from this that an especially significant amount of what is living there amounts to unnatural experiences and unnatural feelings that have imprinted themselves deeply, only to be repressed in the unconscious. But they continue to live on within the human being. The human being becomes a slave to them, these people attribute the myth of Oedipus to the unnatural feelings that every child supposedly feels toward its mother, and so on. It is clear from this perspective that every girl in the tender years of her youth feels jealousy toward her mother because the girl loves her father, and that every little boy is jealous of his father because the boy loves his mother. This then results in a whole complex of feelings, which appear in the guise of a myth in the story of Oedipus and others like it. The fact that spiritual concerns play a role in these matters, but that those spiritual considerations must be filled with the light of consciousness, people do not want to believe this. They are afraid of the idea. To bring it into the light of consciousness, people are afraid of doing that. They would like to repress everything into nebulous darkness. I have drawn your attention in the past 
to the case study that appears over and over again any time one speaks of psychoanalysis. A woman is invited to a get-together at the home of another woman who is sick, and there is a going-away party because the sick woman has to go to a spa. The man of the house is staying at home. The woman must go to the spa. The evening get-together has come to a close. The woman of the house has already been driven to the train station. The evening's company leaves and is on the way home. A horse-drawn carriage, not a car, comes around the corner. The company splits, moving to the left and right out of the way. But precisely the woman, about whom I am speaking, moves neither to the left nor the right, but instead remains in the middle of the street and starts to run away from the horse. The driver, understandably, makes quite a racket, but the woman just keeps running, and it takes all of the driver's strength to rein in the horse, because otherwise it might have run the woman over. They arrive at a bridge. The woman, a prime subject for the psychoanalyst, throws herself into the river. The evening company, who naturally had followed close behind, rescues her. What do they do with her? Well, they bring her back to the host's house, of course. That is the next piece of important information. Now the psychoanalyst sits this woman down on his couch. He lets her tell him everything about what she did in her childhood. Happily he learns from this that when she was a very little girl she was crossing the street one day when a horse came around the corner. She was terribly frightened by this. This experience simmered under the surface in this woman's subconscious. It was waiting there. Ever since, she has been afraid of horses, and consequently she chose to run away from the horse rather than moving to the left or the right side of the street. This is the isolated province of the woman's soul, the fear of horses, housed in her subconscious. There is indeed something hidden in this subconscious realm, but we must penetrate the subconscious with the light of nothing other than spiritual scientific consciousness. Then we will arrive at the realization that this subconscious realm is extremely cunning under certain pathological conditions, that in the case of normal, everyday human consciousness, it is actually not the foundations of the Oedipus complex nor the fear of horses that causes one to go running along the road. It is rather a certain refinement that causes this. The woman, who had been invited to the party that evening, naturally desired nothing more fervently than to spend the night in that house, especially after the other woman had already been sent off to the spa, and the subconscious simply sought the first good opportunity, if it had not been a horse it would have been something else, to orchestrate matters in such a way that the other guests had to bring her back to the house. So she accomplished her goal. Naturally, she would never have allowed herself to wound the sense of propriety that she learned through her upbringing enough to actually do something like this openly. In her conscious mind she is not so crafty, but in the subconscious reside many well-refined impulses that can be extremely cunning. This widespread psychoanalysis has taken on such crass forms these days. So many of the hopeful intellectuals of this day and age believe in this more than you realize. I am not saying this out of insult, but rather to speak the truth. Even the theologians want to build their religion upon its foundations. 
This psychoanalysis is the other result of the fear that exists at present. People are afraid of consciousness. People do not want to grasp things in the clear light of consciousness, but rather want the most important things to be housed below, in their subconscious, so that they can be in control when it comes to these most important things, namely in relationship to their religious feelings. You can see this if you read William James, The American, for whether it is called psychoanalysis in certain regions of Europe, or whether it is called by the names that William James, the American, gives to it, it is all the same. Fear of consciousness rules the day. People do not want the most important things, living within human beings, to be conscious. If they were, then people would have to think more when they direct their own actions with their conscious will. It is significant that people have created this justification for thinking less. Our eurythmy is carried out entirely with and from out of consciousness. It is opposite of everything dreamy. Indeed, people are afraid that by doing eurythmy they will become less artistic because they associate artistry and dreaminess. That is nonsense. When it comes to artistry, it has nothing to do with whether it comes out of one place or another. What is important is that in its forms and expressions it is artistic. This eurythmy, which is based in supra-consciousness, the polar opposite of subconsciousness, was recently reviewed by a man whom I was told is now a doctor. He noticed a lot of the subconscious present in it. This, of course, is a good indication that this man did not understand the first thing about eurythmy. The living core of anthroposophically oriented spiritual science is precisely the thing that is very rarely noticed about it. And you will only notice this inner core fully when through this spiritual science you are able to undergo a complete training of your inner thinking, feeling and willing that makes you more and not less prepared to enter and participate in life. I will not claim that every single person who has chosen anthroposophy as a system of belief is at that point. Choosing anthroposophy as a system of belief does not mean much in relation to this matter. I do not dare to claim that all anthroposophists have reached this point. But look, you will see that the things expressed in the true movement of the anthroposophical community are by and large the things that are brought into it from outside. Even today, very little is taken from within and brought into the outside world. And anthroposophically oriented spiritual science will only become what it should be when it succeeds in no longer bringing in things like a predisposition toward mysticism, a remoteness from everyday life or false idealism, and instead succeeds in carrying out into the world everything that can be taken up in anthroposophically oriented spiritual science an enlivening of the soul life that carries it out into one's limbs, such that it takes hold of the entire human being, not just their sense of faith or system of belief, and thereby influences the course of their everyday lives. This is the heart of the matter. We must seek in full earnest to achieve this. The end of Lecture 11